Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mari Judah. Shabbat Shalom. If you join with me now to Genesis chapter 41, to the portion that we call Miketz. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, And the ugly and the gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them of his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention of today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servant, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night he and I, Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when they had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And at this moment, Joseph begins then to hear the dream. Now, I'm not going to read the portion to you but uh, that follows in the next several verses, but essentially Pharaoh repeats this dream. He tells him in excruciating detail exactly this same dream. You know, seven cows, they came up from the Nile, they were in the grass, seven lean cows, gaunt cows came up, ate the seven fat cows, and then I had seven ears of grain, plump and full, and then seven others came and they ate them all up. So what does it mean? And essentially what Joseph then does, having said God will give the understanding, if there's an understanding and interpretation to be done, he will do it. And then Joseph begins to recount verse 25 of the same chapter. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told the Pharaoh what he is about to do. So we have God will give the answer, and God has now told you something, Pharaoh. And he recounts a little bit more, and he says, you know, the seven, there's seven years. Seven good years, followed by seven bad years. And the seven bad years will eat up the seven good years as though they never existed. 
and it will be great for the seven first years and very bad for the seven years that follow thereafter. And then he repeats it to him again, and then he says in verse 28, it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God will give the interpretation. God has told you, Pharaoh, and God has now shown you, Pharaoh, what he is about to do, the things that are about to happen, and that there will be seven years of famine that will follow after these seven years of abundance. Seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And then verse 32, he says, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Four points that Joseph basically gives. And these are a standard that follows through for dreams. If you're going to have a dream and it's going to be as a result of God having something to do with you in that dream, then there's going to be a couple of traits that will be taking place. It's for you. God is going to give you the interpretation and the understanding. He's going to tell you something. He's going to show you something. Because if you remember, a dream is something visionary. It's something that you actually experience and have a sense of seeing. He tells you, he shows you, and then if it's twice, then it means it's determined of God. There's been a lot of brethren who've contacted me at various times to, to spiritually and to ask me about dreams they've had. Sometimes they tell me this incredible dream. And I ask them, uh, how many times have you had the dream? If they say once, then I say, well, wait. Don't, you don't need to contact me unless you have it at least twice. If you have it twice, write it down. Then let's come and talk about it. Because if you only have it once, there's a very good possibility it was just a little extra garlic in your supper that night that could have caused you to have some sensations. But if it's twice, then you need to take note of it because Joseph gives us these standards with regard to how to deal with dreams when God attempts to speak with us. What happens here is that Immediately, Joseph, upon giving the interpretation to Pharaoh, immediately offers some wise counsel. In verse 33, it says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Some have said that Joseph was maybe just overstepping his bounds just a little bit. It's one thing to come and interpret for a dream. It's another thing to offer counsel to Pharaoh as to what exactly he should do. But apparently Pharaoh responded in kind to this. And I want you to take note of something that has just happened in the scripture. He made this proposal. He says, have Pharaoh take one-fifth of each year of the, of the years of abundance. And what begins now, and, and let me go back just a bit with you about Jacob, the father of Joseph. One of the things I emphasized to you was the number 220,000 that kept coming up when we hear about Joseph. What you're going to see here is that we're going to see a transition from the number 2 to the number 5 that's going to take place in Joseph's life. And every time we turn around, you can see a two and a five, a two and a five. 
And I want you to take note of this. This is what we call the sowed level of the Torah. We're now into the mysterious level because something is going to set a pattern that will follow consistent throughout Scripture that is always talking about a particular theme, spiritual theme force. And it's what Joseph's life is going to be about and how he deals with his brethren. The number two, 20, 200, 2000, the most significant digit two, if we look at Jacob's life, has always been teaching us the spiritual principle of having balance between God and man. There's two tablets, a set of commandments for your relationship with God, a set of commandments for your relationship with man. Balance between God and man. It is not appropriate or right for a man to have one powerful relationship with God and no relationship with a man or vice versa. And it is true. You cannot say that you love God if you hate your brother. You cannot say that you hate or love your brother if you hate God. There must be balance. You must have equality and equity in your relationship between God and between man. And Jacob, if you recall, in his life had to deal with the conflict with his brother Esau who hated him. And he had to deal with, at the same time, God's promise to go into the land and be prospered. How do you reconcile that? God said, go into the land, be prospered, but Esau's waiting to kill you. And so Jacob's life is balancing between those two competing issues and coming to terms with them, being at peace with them. Now, in the case of Joseph, we're going to see a transition because he's the son of Jacob. We're going to see this transition from two to five. And you're going to find the number 550, 500, 5,000 being the number that is now going to dominate every little place in this story. And I want you to take note of these because it's speaking of a particular theme. To cut to the chase, the number five is really telling us about three things. Grace, mercy, and faith. But in this particular case, the context is grace. To understand the grace of God. Unmerited favor that God will do. And we're going to see Joseph being gracious to his brethren and his brethren struggling with this grace and not knowing what to do with it or how to deal with it. Because quite honestly, grace is not a concept that works well with free men. Free men want to operate on the concepts of equity and fairness. And grace is just off the scale because it's unmerited favor. You can't buy it. You can't relate to it. You can't equate this is equal to that favor. It's unmerited favor. So it's off the scale. And so it is foreign to the concept of, of men. And here is where Moses and the Torah are trying to give us our first true introduction to a concept that in the New Covenant dominates much of our thinking in the New Covenant. I love it when I hear some of my New Covenant brethren wanting to take issue with the teaching of Moses, wanting to take issue with the things of Torah by explaining that in the New Testament they have grace. That they have grace and that back in Torah and Moses, we don't know what grace is. I have news for you, brethren. The very definition of grace comes from the Torah. 
And it comes from the life of Joseph, who is a type of the Messiah, who will be hated and rejected of his brethren, sold, cast into a pit, but yet God will raise him up from the pit so that he will be above his brethren and all his brethren will bow down to him. It's the story of the Messiah. And then this Joseph will exhibit grace to his brethren, to their chagrin. They won't understand it. They won't be able to deal with it. And I can tell you right now that in a Jewish mindset, we don't deal with the concept of God's grace very well at all. Now, some would say, well, Christianity does. I disagree. Because I think anybody... In Christianity, says, well, we have grace. We're entitled to it. We've earned it. We, we, that we, in the New Covenant, we have it. You don't have it. It's unmerited favor. And the first moment you say you got it, you lost it. That's what we call falling from grace. If you think you have it, you don't have it. If you know you don't deserve it, but you're glad to have it, and you've received it of God, and you call it the gift of God, then you probably have it. Then you probably do have it. But it requires great humility on the man. There is no place for haughtiness within the believers and yet lay claim to grace. And this will certainly be illustrated for us in the life of Joseph in dealing with his brethren. So having set the stage, this is the key point of what I'm going to try to emphasize to you in this teaching. You're going to see the concept of two to five, two to five, that's going to be taking place here in this story. And it's about this theme about grace. I'm going to try to explain grace the way Moses, the way Torah, the way God is trying to illustrate it for us so that we have a sure foundation of those concepts. Joseph, at this point, having given the interpretation to Pharaoh, having given the counsel that he should find a discerning and wise man to be over the land of Egypt, to gather in the abundance and to keep one-fifth of that abundance to prepare for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh immediately is overwhelmed with, and he says, where can we find such a man? Where can we find a man who is moved by the Spirit of God, yet has the wisdom the practical knowledge to manage and to oversee such a task. Who could be trusted to do such a thing? Well, it's a real short list on this when there's only one candidate that qualifies and his name is Joseph. He's not an Egyptian. He's Hebrew, he's separate. So he's just there for the task. He's different from other men. He's different from the other Egyptians, other men who've been politicizing and working their way up in the ranks under Pharaoh's leadership. He's completely separate. He's the only one that can truly be trusted, trusted to do such a task, who will not misappropriate and will accomplish that which he needs to do. So Joseph rises to the position to become the viceroy of Egypt, number two man. And in the course of what Pharaoh does now is he does seven things for Joseph. One, he gives him the authority over the land of Egypt. He has the power and the authority over all of the land. He gives him a signet ring. He gives him garments of fine linen for him now to wear. 
He gives him a gold necklace, more of a more of a collar piece, the Egyptian collar piece that was a a, a gold uh, chain uh, weaved kind of thing, and that this is uh, the Egyptians, the only ones who wore this particular type of attire. And this is one of the evidences of the truth of Torah, the writings of Moses, because it's very explicit and specific about this particular custom of leadership with the Egyptians. And archaeologists and those have found that this is one of the places where truly the writer of this passage of Scripture had to have known those things accurately and correctly to have recounted them properly. He gives him a chariot, a second chariot, There's only one chariot that rides in front of him, and that's Pharaoh himself. He gives him a new name. In fact, he gives him a name. It's a very interesting Egyptian name. Let me find the passage where it says it specifically. In chapter 41 and in verse 45, it says, Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paniah. A very interesting name. They're not really exactly sure as to what this name is, but let me give you some of the explanations that have been given by uh, some of the scholars as to the meaning of this name. Zaphonath seems to relate to uh, abundance. Panania is is about life, the abundance of life. And in particular, the abundance that it's going to be referring to is the grain that will make bread. And so one of the titles that has been given to him is the bread man of life. The bread man of life or the abundance of food and of life is what his name actually means. And finally, he gives him a wife. Azana becomes his wife. So suddenly he goes in one day from in the prison, stuck potentially forever, with an unfulfilled destiny to suddenly being number two man in Egypt with all of these things now bestowed upon him and a very specific task in charge now over the land of Egypt. It goes on to say that the seven years of uh, plenty are exactly as he says. The abundance that comes in is tremendous. Now, several scholars have attempted to go in and try to do some estimates and say, how do you make, now stay with me on this for a moment, how do you make seven good years and you take one-fifth of each one of them, how do you make that one-fifth that was collected up to be adequate to, to satisfy the other seven years of famine? Because you... This is not a case of your kind of managing in a graceful, degraded state because the scripture is very clear that there was no plowing and no harvesting during the seven years. So there's nothing. So whatever is gained from the seven years of abundance is somehow going to be adequate to cover those other seven years because we know historically that that's what happened. It was adequate. It it was sufficient to cover for the seven years. Egypt lived and the peoples who came to Egypt for food lived. But how do you get one-fifth of the abundance to get that to work out? It never quite works out. It's like the numbers are there, but it, it doesn't make sense. And that's part of the issue 
about the business of grace. If you try to quantify God's grace, you'll start off and you'll end up being frustrated because it never adds up. It never comes out quite right. That the grace is always sufficient, but it's but but and it's sufficient to the issue that you're addressing, but it never works out like you could store it up. You can't get extra grace and set it aside for another. It, it's either sufficient or it's not. And that's just one of the interesting things about this one-fifth of the abundance. So Joseph proceeds to carry the task out. And he begins to collect this grain. The scripture goes on to tell us that in the course of wrapping up the grain and storing up the grain, that it was sufficient to the point. In fact, let me see if I can uh, find the uh, exact verse here for you. I don't have it listed in my note. But let me summarize it by saying this. The grain was exceedingly abundant, it says, that it was as the sand of the sea, so that it could not be counted anymore, and it was beyond measure. That the grain, this one-fifth, I don't know what happened to the other four-fifths, but this one-fifth amount, as they would add to it, it would somehow become more and more and more. In fact, they, they literally they filled up every granary, and they'd fill them up, and it would, it would be overflowing all over the place, and every city was overflowing with it. And the numbers just don't make sense. You know, what were the other four-fifths? If one-fifth, you know, gathered up each year was just, it couldn't be measured. What, what were the other ones like? It just, you know, it doesn't quite add up. It's all we, all we are left with the fact is that whatever it is that Joseph is doing, that it somehow is becoming an amount of food and grain which cannot be measured. It's an abundant amount that has been collected up. Another measure, another definition for us of grace. So, the famine begins. And, as expected, as Joseph had said in the dream, given the interpretation of the dream, that first year of that famine, there was no plowing and there was no harvesting. And everyone was immediately out of food. And... If you were going to get food, you had to come to Egypt. And you had to come before Joseph to get it. The bread man of life. Well, they're in the land of Canaan where Jacob and his brethren are at. They too are lacking food. And Jacob hears, obviously from travelers or whatever, there's grain in Egypt, but there is no grain elsewhere. Now, one of the things that we might want to take note of, and this is archaeologically supported, in Egypt, so that you kind of understand this business of how they grew things agriculturally, the River Nile, which is the life of Egypt, the central fresh water flowing down through the land of Goshen and so forth, every year, essentially, the Nile, the River Nile, has a cycle to it. It rains, and the winter rains cause it to flood. The River Nile gets up out of its banks. It floods the whole land of Egypt, and it, like, irrigates the whole land of Egypt. It puts sufficient water throughout all of the land, and then as the waters recede, then the land is perfect for planting and harvesting. 
archaeologically they have found a document that says at the time, and this comes out right on the years, at the time that Joseph was in Egypt, there were seven years in which the River Nile did not do this. It did not flood. And as a result, insufficient water was given to the land, and the land was so dry and parched, he didn't even put seed in it. There was no sense to even plowing or attempting to grow anything. The land was too dry. And for seven years, that's what happened. The river Nile did not flood and do this normal cycle that it normally does. And so uh, we think that may be the reason why uh, Egypt suffered, you know, by not being able to grow the food. So the food is there. Joseph has stored it up. And finally, his brethren are now making their way down into Egypt uh, to go and buy some food. And it is recounted for us in chapter 42, where it says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then it says, ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. There are 11 brothers, but only 10 will make this trip. Benjamin will remain home with his father, the actual brother of Joseph by his mother, Rachel. And these 10 brothers now come in the procession to buy grain, and they have to go before Joseph, the bread man of life, to make their purchases. And in the course of the coming forth, it says that Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. Now, there's some reasons probably why they didn't recognize him. The last time they saw him, he was 17 years old. He was screaming at the top of his lungs from the bottom of a pit. They sold him, and he was weeping and crying, and that was the last they saw him. They didn't really want to see him anymore. But now, 13 years later, at the age of 30, he is a full-grown man. He is in Egyptian guard. He is the viceroy of Egypt. This is not the setting that you would have ever guessed that young Joseph would have ever attained to. And whereas there might have been some slight resemblances, the idea is you couldn't possibly believe that it could be Joseph. So in any case... Joseph is able to show himself to his brethren and converse with them, and they're not able to recognize him or come to terms with it that it's Joseph, but he knows that these are his brethren. And now, as we might say in the more of a Western vernacular, turnabout is fair play. These who have rejected Joseph are now going to have to deal with with Joseph, but they but they have very unfair advantage because Joseph has all the power, they have none. And he knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. And it scripture tells us very easily, verse eight of chapter forty two, but Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him, and Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. And now we understand one of the important things about these dreams. Dreams are given to a person to assist them. It's to assist them, not to necessarily tell them what their future is, because I can assure you that Joseph 
when he was sitting in the prison in Egypt, was not sitting there going, hey, you know, guys, I'm going to get out of prison one day because God gave me a dream that I would be in charge of my brethren and they would bow down to me. That's not what he was promoting. He, he probably was wondering what in the world was that dream about. And now that he's in the position of authority, and now that his brethren do come, now he then understands this is why God gave me the dream. There's a destiny here. Something important is getting ready to take place, and God has beforehand told me how to get ready for it, just like he told Pharaoh how to get ready for it. He's now told me how to get ready to deal with it. And here's the point that I want you to take note of. In his dream, if you go back to Genesis 37 and verse 7, it says all his brethren bowed down to him. All 11 sheaves, but there's only 10 brothers here. So he knows, based on the dream, he needs to get his other brother here. Because the dream said 11 sheaves would bow down, not 10. But there's only 10 present. And so but using the guidance of the dream, we now watch Joseph pursue his brothers, challenging them as to their reason and motivation for coming to the land. And he says, he challenges them immediately. He says, oh, you guys are spies. You've come to check out the undefended portions of the land of the great land of Egypt. And, of course, they're into immediately denial. You know, here are these shepherds, you know, out of the land of Canaan, and they're going to spy against Egypt, which is the greatest civilization of the world at that time, who drives golden chariots in combat. You know, the Canaanites, you know, they use slings. They throw rocks at each other. The, uh, the Egyptians had taken warfare at this particular point kind of to the advanced level. And so immediately Joseph is challenging these shepherds. He says, oh, you guys are spies. You think you're going to come take on Egypt. Oh, that's the last thing we're here for. And in fact, he begins to use the words, verse 11, we are sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. We are honest men. They will say it over and over. We're honest men. And of course, Joseph is saying, honest men? Honest men do the things you do? And he's going to take them to task based on their own testimony. The, um, by the way, this same logic here that is used here, did you know that this is used by airline security people? You know, when you go traveling now on an airline, especially if you have to make an international flight, if you have single men, if you have single men and they're not related with one another, but they're traveling together, you have just fit the top profile for an international terrorist. But if you're traveling with your own family, if you're brethren of one another, if you come from the same family, it's what begins to disqualify you and move you down the threat cycle. When I took tours over to Israel, um, and the tours, I think the most recent tour that I had, I had a series of uh, about three or four men that were traveling uh, in a single status. They weren't bringing their wives, uh, and they'd all kind of congregated together, and we were, we were going to fly El Al 
And the first thing they got challenged was, well, who are you with? Or who are you traveling with? And they all said, well, we're single guys. We're on this tour. We're going to be going over. How many of you are? There was three or four of us, three or four single guys. You're, do, you, do you know one another? No, never met each other. Just met each other just right here at the airport. <clears throat> well, who are you with? And immediately, I don't know. It, it was kind of funny because everybody else in the tour got to go through quickly and load. They got to load last. Security had them the last to check them out because fearful, because they fit the profile. And that's basically what Joseph is doing with them. Oh, we, you know, you guys are just a bunch of single guys in here checking things out. You're probably spies. You're probably terrorists to here in Egypt. No, we're honest men. We're no terrorists. We're not come here to do any harm. So he challenges them with him. And then I love this part. He just immediately takes them from there and he says, uh, and he puts them in jail. Just arrests them, throws them in jail, lets them sit there for three days. Can you imagine sitting, you know, you came there to buy food, your family's waiting back there, for, and the whole lot of you are sitting there. You know, in three days, you do a lot of deep, you know, prayerful, you know, God, why is this happening in my life? You know, what have I done? You know, and, and, and that's what happens to them. They start, oh, it's because of what we did with our brother, Joseph. Remember, we wouldn't listen to his cries from the pit. We wouldn't have no mercy on him. And, and look what has now happened. God has found us out. And here we are, we're all in a pit now, in a jail, Egyptian jail. It's just like a pit. And Joseph comes and he says, well, I have a test for you. If you're be honest men, then here's the test. You said that you have a father. You said that you have another brother. Go get your other brother. Go get your other brother. Bring him here so I can examine him. And we'll see if you're telling the truth, if you're honest men. He said, and as a surety so that you will do this, I will take one of you and I will keep him here so that one of you is missing and you have to come back and get him. So the brethren, it says there, the, the brethren of Joseph, they agree to this terms because at this point, you know, it's a whole, nine of us are going to get out of jail. <laughs> That's better than all 10 of us staying in jail saying, no, we don't like your terms. So they're willing to get out. And then Joseph does something fascinating. He walks up and he immediately binds Simeon. Why Simeon? Why bind him? Well, if you recall from the story of the brethren when they first accosted Joseph and threw him in the pit, it was Simeon who said, let's kill him. Let's do it. Let's kill him. And Simeon, his name means hated. Simeon was living out the meaning of his name. He was hating his brother. And so without knowing who they are, at least that's what they thought, he walks up and he binds the very man who started that whole process they've been sitting there repenting for. And, they, and he puts him in prison. And it's like they're in shock. Boy, surely God is in charge of this thing. He knows what's going on. I mean, he knows it was Simeon who got us and just, who started and we, we followed suit and got in trouble. And so the brethren are then released and they get their food and, and they head home. And that's when they notice this food that, that they got from Joseph. Their money is in the sacks. The money, they paid for the food. They've got the food. They've got the sacks. But they find their money in the sacks. And they're going, I, I love the expression that the, the brethren asked. And it says, what is this thing that God is doing to us? I love it when brethren really try to come to terms with grace. That's usually the first thing they say. What is this thing that God's trying to do to me here? Well, he's being gracious to you. This is grace? 
This is unmerited favor? I don't understand it. I, I didn't earn this. I, I thought I was going to pay for something, and, I, and you won't take my money. That's right. It's unmerited. You can't buy it. You can't buy this favor from God. If you shell your money out, you get your money back. It gets right back to you. You can't purchase this grace, this gift, this life. And you can't buy the bread of Joseph. His brethren can't purchase it. So they make their way back all fearful and upset. And the scripture goes on to tell us that uh, the time goes by and uh, they run out of food again. And they say, well, we we got, we got to go back. We got to get some more food. Jo- Jacob's saying, well, guys, go go back and buy some more food. And he said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The man, the man what we talked to, you know, this viceroy of Egypt, this guy's got all the bread. We we He said, remember, Simeon is still there. He's still there in prison. And he said, if we don't bring Benjamin back with us to prove that we are honest men, then we will surely get ourselves thrown in prison right along with Simeon because he'll then prove that that we're not honest men. And so, Jacob, you've got to allow us to... Jacob doesn't like this. He does not like this idea of sending Benjamin. He says, oh, my goodness, his brother has already been lost. I've already lost Joseph, and and now you want to ask me to give up Benjamin. I don't want to give him up. Yeah, but what about Simeon? (laughs) You know, you lost him too. Yeah, well, that was your fault. You guys are the ones that told him that story about other brothers and all that, and you guys didn't handle it well. We did the best we could. I mean, the man has authority over us. We had to answer his question. We had no idea he was going to do this to us. So I love Reuben. Reuben, uh, he wants to propose to his father, and he comes up and he says, Dad, look, you know, my two sons, you can kill my two sons, you know, if I don't if I don't bring Benjamin back. What? This is supposed to make his grandfather happy? Oh, good. Kill some more of them. Get rid of some more of the family. Reuben's uh, thing, I don't know, he's not really thinking too smart. You know what I'm trying to say? The idea is to preserve life, not give it up. You know, why would two grandsons take care of uh, the appeasement of two sons. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So it's Judah who then proposes to Jacob, and he says, I will be a surety for him. I will stand in place of his life. I assure you, I will bring him back to you, and I will give my life to guarantee it. Well, that you're not going to get a better offer than that, which, by the way is one of the themes about what the scripture is trying to explain to us. The valuing of another life more than yours. Because we're starting to get into the definition of grace now. Grace is how God shows to you that he's valuing you more than you value you. That he's putting a value on you and your life that far exceeds the value you would give yourself. And he's trying to teach you that that's how you're supposed to value God because you have nothing in your existence or in your control that comes anywhere near the value of God. And if you can begin to understand the value of God, then you can begin to understand the value of God's grace when he values you far more than anything you could ever imagine. And so Judah does the best he can. He says, I can't, I can't uh, be him, but I'll offer me, I'll offer all I have to be a surety for him. Jacob accepts this proposal, and they now proceed to make their way back. Of course, we're going back now, and we're concerned about, you know, we had got that money from him last time. We didn't pay for it. Maybe there was a mistake on his servant's part. Maybe they thought we stole it. So the first thing that they do when they show up is they immediately 
want to give the money. They, they want to pay the money right up front. Before we ask for any more food, we want to pay the money from the previous one right up front. Please, please take our money. We've got it right here. And it says, in fact, the scripture alludes to that they didn't have the money in their sacks. They literally had it in their hands. They literally walked up to him and said, here's the money. You know, you didn't take last time. Here, here, here I, I, I'm not trying to steal it or misrepresent it. It's, it's yours. Here, I brought it. I brought it first before we even ask for anything more. Here's your money. And Joseph... Um, whether he intended to do this purposefully or not, uh, the result is he immediately calls for the servants to bring his brethren to Joseph's house. Not to the public setting of where they'd been trading for food before. Not, not where they had been challenged before, but rather to come directly to Joseph's house. And this makes the brethren even more fearful. Oh my goodness, what is he going to do now? This guy has all this power. If we're at his house where well, he could exercise all manner of judgment over us. And they walk up and they say to the servant at, at Joseph's house, this, look, uh, there's been a mistake. Uh, we've still got the money that we attempted to pay for the grain before. We, we somehow got in our sacks. We, we don't have any idea how it got in our sacks, but, but it, it's yours. Here, we brought it. And the servant gives a very interesting answer. He says, your God and the God of your father has given you that treasure. What? This is the Egyptian. This is not your Hebrew. This is not your covenant people. And this Egyptian is giving testimony to the covenant people and saying, your God gave you that money. He gave us the money. We came to buy food. And now even the servants of the Egyptians say, no, no, your God's doing that to you. Your God gave you that treasure. So they're like dumbfounded. And they walk in, and here's Simeon. Simeon's restored to them. Well, okay, I get this is kind of working out good here. This is this is great. I guess I guess we're going to make it just fine. We're, we 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 still got our money. Uh, we got Simeon back. We got Benjamin. Everything's looking good, and we're going to have lunch, you know. And then Joseph scares them even worse. He sets them down for lunch, and he arranges them from the oldest to the youngest in their proper positions. And they're like, how does he know? know how we're organized. How, how does he know this? But there's this inference that, that Joseph is a very powerful man and that he has the ability, and this is the testimony that he has in, in Egypt, that he has the ability to divine. He has a divine spirit in him that he is, has a relationship with God and that God speaks to him and uses him. And, and here's the evidence. I mean, God's doing something with us and he's using this man to do something to us. And we don't like it. We're very uncomfortable with it, but it's good. It's working out okay so far. So we're all having lunch and everything's doing fine. And then it says that Joseph comes up and he serves. And this is what I want you to take note of. In fact, I believe it's uh, chapter 43 and verse 23. Let me see if I can find. This is where the where the um, the servant gives him an answer to how they still have the money in their sacks. Um, and in the course of the dialogue, let me read for you there. Verse 24, then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, washed their feet. He gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him to present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Now all 11 brothers are bowing, like the dream said. 
All 11 are now bound. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well? And of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father is well. He's still alive. And they bowed down in homage. They bowed again. And he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered the chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself, and he said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. And then look at this. And he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Why five times? It's another point in which the Torah is trying to give us a clue. We're seeing this number five show up. Benjamin receives five times as much as any of the other brethren. And they've got to be sitting there going, "Mm, why is that happening? And they don't really know, but he's getting it. Everything goes great. The meal is over with. They're ready to go home. Well, we came to buy some more grain. Great. Let's load you up with grain. They load them up with grain. Everything's going great. We're leaving. We're going to get out of here clean. We got Simeon. We got Benjamin. Everything is working great. Had had a nice lunch, you know, with the the uh, number two man in Egypt, and and everything's going great. And and uh, so they they take off. It says they've barely gotten out of the city, barely. When Joseph has laid a trap for them, and he sends his servants off to him, he says, "Is this what you're doing? You're repaying good with evil." And they stop their little caravan and they say, you've stolen from us. We didn't steal nothing. We're good guys. We're honest men. I mean, we're just trying to get out of here and get home. And they open up their sacks and every sack has their money again. Only they're not concerned about that. They're saying, oh, we're, we're going to be in trouble. We got the money again. And he said, no, no, it's not the money. It's a cup. You took a silver cup of divining that our master had. You stole his power to divine and have the divine spirit. And that's what you were stealing. What are you talking about? We we didn't do any such thing. Now, our money thing, we can't explain that, but, but you're not worried about the money? No, I'm not worried about the money. Well, nobody's got that cup. In fact, the guy that's got that cup is, can, you know, he, you know, Kill him. He can be a slave forever. He says, that's right. So they went from the oldest and they opened up his sack and they went through it. No cup. They went to the next one. No cup. They get to the last one, Benjamin. And to everybody's shock, he's got the cup. I mean, they are all over themselves with what is going on. Now they're all being hauled back in again. Can you see this dilemma that they're going through? I mean, it's like the shock and they're being presented with the issues, they are in deep trouble. I I thought we got out of there and all of a sudden our whole world has come crashing down on us. And that's basically where the passage ends, at least at this point, with them being confronted with Benjamin has the cup. And they're in deep trouble. But that's not the end of our teaching. 
I could tell everybody was getting concerned. You're not going to stop there, are you? No, to understand this particular part of the story, to understand what is taking place at this point. Now, we know what's going to happen. We know that Joseph is going to very shortly reveal himself. Judah is going to stand as a surety for his Benjamin and offer him his own life on behalf of it. Joseph is its going to break Joseph's heart. He's going to reveal who he is. And this calamity that was going on with the brethren is going to come to a conclusion with them actually being restored to Joseph. You see, it turns out that Joseph's whole purpose in everything that he's doing is to restore his relationship with his brethren. That's the reason why he started being coy and dealing with them, and they would, they would buy grain, but they would get their money back and, because he's trying to get their attention because he wants to restore the broken relationship between his brethren and him. That's what grace is for. Grace is used by God to restore broken relationships. It's God's way of reaching out to us and getting us to come back to him so that we our relationship might be restored with him. But now, as I told you before, this 2-5 business, and that's where it's going to get really interesting for us because for those of us who are in the new covenant, the 2-5 thing is a very, very important concept in the New Testament trying to explain grace to us. Because Yeshua will use this 2-5 thing to explain this whole message to us from the New Covenant standpoint. He's going to take the example of Joseph, and Joseph's trying to restore his relationship with his brethren, and the Messiah's going to try to show that he's trying to restore his relationship with all men. God trying to restore his relationship with men, and how God is going to use grace to do it. In Genesis 45 and verse 6, so that you see how the concept still works through with Joseph, when Joseph reveals himself to his brethren, he says, I'm Joseph. He explains what has been happening and where, why he's in Egypt and the task that he is trying to do, that he's trying to be a preservation for their lives. And he says in Genesis 45 and verse 6, for the famine has been in the land for two years and there are still Five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Two and five. Two and five. And he's explaining it there. That's the punchline of what Joseph has been doing as he reveals himself to his brethren, which we'll examine in next week's portion. But this two-five thing makes its way into other things that we will find later in Scripture. In particular, and I'm not going to go into great detail. I can't right now, but maybe when we're talking about temple and tabernacle later on. Did you know that the temple that was built in Jerusalem, it had two big pillars in the front? You know, you'd walk up the porch and you'd go through the doors. There were two big pillars. The scripture is very emphatic about telling us, this is in 1 Kings seven sixteen, and in 2 Chronicles three fifteen, it gives the measurements of these pillars. It says, for example, in those two passages, there were two pillars, and they are 35 cubits high. And the capitals, the top part, are five cubits each, two and five. And the pillars of the doorway, they're going into the sanctuary. What God is trying to give testimony, what he's trying to indicate by putting two pillars, he could have put four pillars, but he put two pillars. And it wasn't just for artful decor. It's a message. It's trying to give a message. And what it's trying to say that if you're going to approach God, if you're going to come into this sanctuary before God, you're going to come by God's grace. 
You have to go through God's grace to get here. That's what the two pillars mean in the temple. The very dimensions of them. And those numbers, that's what they illustrate. And the scripture is emphatic about giving us these measurements to tell us because these numbers mean something. Because the Torah teaches us the numbers of things mean certain things. But it doesn't end there. We have a rather major event happening in the New Testament that's going to have this concept of 2-5. Maybe you've already picked up on it. Maybe you're already familiar with the story. This is a particular event. Now, I want you to take note of something. In the Synoptic Gospels, if you get a singular event that all four gospel writers write about, you got something that you need to really lock in on. There's a couple of major events in which all four gospel writers will record, not the least of which is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. But there's one particular miracle that all four gospels Make no bones about it. They give exacting detail about this one event. It's when Yeshua went out to minister one day, and they didn't have any food. And there was a little boy that had two fishes and five loaves. It's recorded for us in Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6. And there's more detail given about that particular miracle in which that 5,000 were fed in which that they took these little five loaves and he blessed them and he broke them like Joseph did with the one-fifth thing. And it just turned into more than you can ever imagine. In fact, everyone ate. And when they gathered the pieces up, there were 12 baskets full of this broken bread. 12, like, you know, the 12 sons of Israel, like the 12 apostles. It was a basket full for everybody. After everybody was fed, they, they don't quite know exactly how it happened. You know, he broke it and it was sufficient. It was God's unmerited favor and everybody had enough. Everybody got fed, everybody. And then there was still an abundance. There was plenty of fish and there was plenty of bread for that lunch. Now, I want you to follow along with me this little miracle of two fishes and the five loaves because what Yeshua is doing is he's trying to speak to the people, and he's trying to relate to something that Joseph did. He's trying to take the example of Joseph illustrating for us the grace of God and what he did with his brethren, how Joseph was trying to show that he's trying to be restored to his brethren, and he's going to extend grace to his brethren to be restored to him. And here's the Messiah trying to repair this broken relationship between God and man, and what is he going to extend to him? The very symbols, the very thing, the very grace of God to illustrate to them. Turn with me now to John chapter 6. We'll look at that particular gospel account of this miracle and see how this progresses, how this teaching of this particular thing progresses. Beginning at John chapter 6 and beginning there at verse 9, it says, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, But what are we to do with so many people? And Yeshua said to him, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so this men sit down in number about 5,000. This is going to be a miracle about grace. We're going to take five measly loaves, which you cannot figure out how they will cover the bases, and we're going to feed 5,000 men. And we're still going to have something left over. And that's what God's grace is all about. 
It's going to be sufficient. It won't look like it will, but it will be sufficient. And there will still be an abundance when it's over and done with. Yeshua, therefore, took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. In fact, one of the other gospels says they sat in groups of 50s. He fed 5,000, but they sat in groups of 50s. Why groups of 50s? Five. This little group, that group, that group, that group. Every one of them is illustrating the same principle. Likewise, also as the fish as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is a truth. The prophet who is to come into the world. They started to get it. This is like the guy Joseph. This is like the example of the life of Joseph, who is an illustration of the Messiah, who will be raised up above. Who will provide food? Who will provide bread? Who will provide life? Like Joseph provided life. Who was sent beforehand to be a preservation of life unto us. He is doing the same thing. They started to get it. I'm not sure the disciples are yet getting it. Actually, the people are not getting it yet either. And Yeshua is going to confront them with it. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Yeshua had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. And when, therefore, they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Yeshua walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. Immediately the boat was on the land to which that they were going. Actually, there's another part of the story I should point out to you from the other gospel accounts. When the storm rose up, these guys were all over themselves crying out to God and just knew they were going to die. This storm was real bad. They were tripping all over each other, scared to death that God was not going to save them. And I've always had it pointed out to me, my previous teachers, they said, what in the world were they in the boat tripping over? Twelve baskets of bread. See, God's grace is sufficient for all your needs, only we don't get it. We think we love God's grace, the blessing, we like the bread and all that, but then we get into some kind of trauma, we get into some trouble, and we don't realize that we still have that grace. So we trip all over it and cry out, and we think we're in trouble. Yeshua comes walking on the water up to them, and they were scared to death of that. So a lot of shocking events all of a sudden taking place. Anyways, they arrive, and it says, verse 22, the next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Yeshua had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the multitude therefore saw that Yeshua was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Yeshua. Why? Tremendous teaching that Yeshua had done. Wrong. Free lunch. If you hang around with this guy, this guy has got bread. Okay? He's got lunch. Go get that guy. I don't know how he did it, but he took five barley loaves, and there was plenty of lunch for all of us. Let's go find that guy. 
Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Yeah, how did you get here? You didn't leave with the guys on the other boat. How did you get here? You didn't take the other boat. How did you get here? Yeshua answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're here for the bread. You don't get it. You don't get what I tried to show you. What I've been trying to explain. You don't get this grace of God. You don't understand this great salvation and deliverance that I'm offering. You don't understand the preservation of life that I've come to do. You're like Joseph's brethren. You don't understand. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may make uh, may work the works of God? Yeshua answered and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may believe and believe you? What sign are you asking? Me? What about the bread? You're asking for a sign to believe? I just showed you the sign of Joseph. And you don't get it. And then he begins to say to him, let me give some more. He says, I'll give you another illustration. Verse 31, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Yeshua therefore said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You don't get it. I am the bread. What city was Yeshua born in? Bethlehem. What's that mean? The house of bread. You don't get it. I'm the true bread from heaven. All that other stuff that happened before were examples so that you would understand so that when the substance would come to you, you'd have the symbol and it would help you to understand the substance of what God is going to do for you. He's going, I've been sent beforehand to be a preservation of life to you. I've come to resolve the conflict between you and your father, God. But you don't get it. You're like Joseph's brethren. You thought you were just there to buy some bread. Joseph was there to give grace and to restore the broken relationship. Yeshua is here not just to give bread, although he can do that, but to restore a broken relationship. And he says, I'm the bread. I'm the bread you can't buy. Your money can't buy me. I won't take your money. You ain't got enough money. You'll find your money in your sacks. And then he goes on to say, verse 35, I am the bread of life who comes to me, shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. You know what, brethren? This is one of my favorite expressions I always deal with with my new covenant brethren. Let me make this comment here to go along with what we have. You ever heard anybody in a church, you know, they've gone to a church and They've kind of been there for a while, and it's getting kind of dull. And you ever heard one of your brethren ever say, you know, 
I'm just not getting fed there. Just not getting fed there. You know, it's all kind of dry. This is not tasty anymore, and I'm just thirsty. Just, you know, there's no drink there. It's just no, nothing refreshing there. Brethren, I have news for you. The Messiah is a bread that if you eat of, you will never be hungry again. He is truly satisfying. He is a drink that if you drink of him, you will never be thirsty again. If you have tasted of this bread and you have drank of this drink, you will never say, I'm hungry. Because you've been satisfied. You will never say, I'm thirsty. Because you've had a drink that has quenched your thirst. And so if by chance you're saying, gee, I'm, I'm still hungry, I'm, I'm still thirsty, it's because you've been eating the wrong bread. You're like Joseph's brethren. You're there, you, we were there for some bread. No, no, that's not what you're really there for. That's not what God was doing there. That's not what Joseph was doing here. That's not what Yeshua is doing here. That's not what God is trying to do in your life. He's trying to get you a piece of bread so you'll never be hungry again. As I've said to you in this congregation before, I am not here to make you look or smell like a bunch of Jews. Oh, let's put keep on. Let's wear talit. Let's keep Sabbath. Let's keep biblical holidays. We'll all look the same. We'll all smell the same. We'll sing the same songs. That's not what I'm interested in. I am interested, brethren, in introducing you to the Messiah of Israel who is the true bread from heaven, that if you take a taste of him, you will never be hungry again. If you take a drink from him, you'll never be thirsty again. And that's what you're really looking for, and that's what you really want, and that's what he wants. We use these symbols so that you might understand the substance. It's the substance we're trying to get to of our faith, and it's in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah, who is a type of Joseph. Whereas Joseph was the bread man of life, Yeshua is the true bread of life. Whereas he was the abundance of life, Yeshua came and said, I have come that you might have a life and you might have it more abundantly. I'm like the bread of Joseph. I'm like Joseph. I, that, as I've said to you before, now do you understand maybe the reason why he's Yeshua ben Yosef? Yeshua, son of Joseph. You know, we don't get it. We don't quite get the clues so that we can come to terms with it. The two and the five symbol that is given to us by Joseph is the same two and five symbol that Yeshua gave to us in the two fishes and the five barley loaves. It's not about bread, guys. It's not about eating the abundance of bread. It's about who is the bread? Who is the life? Yeshua will recount for them repeatedly for you. And this is in John chapter 6. Let me just read to you verse 40, 48. This is, this, this is the follow-up conversation he's having with him. He said, I am the bread of life. He said it as directly as he possibly could. I, Yeshua, am the bread of life. That's what it's about. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my life. 
my body. It's the life. It's the bread. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. I'm not talking about manna in the wilderness. I'm talking about the symbol of manna that would be the true bread. That's me. He's trying to explain the role of the Messiah, who's a type of Joseph. Actually, Joseph is a type of the Messiah. So that we can understand the great work of the Messiah. I've always enjoyed this particular story of of, uh, the brethren trying to come to terms with with, uh, Joseph and their struggle with it because it, it helps me to understand a lot of times the brethren that we deal with and their struggle in trying to come to terms with Yeshua. And the fact of the matter is, brethren, we're kind of like the the brethren of Joseph. We're just kind of like those those brethren there going to Capernaum. You know, there's still a lot in our assembly that I'm, I'm here for the blessing. I'm, I'm here for the good stuff. I'm here to for the friendship, the fellowship. I'm, I'm here to get some bread. That's not what we're really offering here. Oh, yeah, those, some of those things are present, but that's not what we're really, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is for the true bread of heaven, the real grace of God, the unmerited favor, the gift of life. That's what we're here for. Amen? For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.